Hebrews chapter 2 starts with a four-verse sequence that, uh, to use modern language, uh, discusses our responsibility to maintain our testimony. There are several interesting features to these four verses that I want to cover. Verse 1 has a phrase at the very end that sounds like a modern colloquialism that we would use today lest at any time we should let them slip. Uh, to have something slip or slip away is, is um, a phrase that we do use from time to time in our modern language. We might even hear it in a song or in a poem. And Paul is referring here to, as we read earlier in verse 1, the things which we have heard, and then says, lest at any time we should let them slip. In verse 3, he says something kind of similar. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now, when we read these statements in context, we can see that Paul is talking about the attainment of testimony and how shall we escape our accountability if we allow uh, this conviction that we once developed to slip away. So to talk about that for just a moment, uh, I served my mission in 1991 through 1993, and I remember attending <clears throat> a mission-wide conference in Brisbane, Australia, where now a temple sits, and then Elder Russell M. Nelson was visiting our mission with his wife, Danzel, and I had the pleasure of meeting Elder Nelson personally for a few minutes. Uh, he even remembered uh, my grandfather operating on him and uh, told me that he uh, remembered Eddie Rice's name and had been praying for him, said my, my wife and I prayed for him. Uh, anyway, we went on and, and had a, an amazing meeting with Elder Nelson, and I remember a question that was asked to him uh, at the end of his talk. Someone asked him what to do about members uh, it was a retention question, essentially, about new members who uh, went through the process of um, receiving the missionary discussions and who were baptized but, but then never fully uh, integrated into their wards and who decided they no longer believed uh, the things that led them to be baptized in the first place in spite of what they perceived to be uh, adequate fellowshipping efforts. And Elder Nelson said, Never forget, Elder, that a testimony is a perishable commodity. Uh, that has stuck with me ever since. It's confirmed by a statement in Alma, at the end of Alma chapter 32, when Alma talks about a tree and he talks about a scenario in which it can wither. He says that that's not because the tree wasn't good. He says it's because your ground was barren, and you didn't nourish the tree, but the tree was good. And so it goes. A tree or a testimony can uh, appear non-viable if you don't feed it and it is indeed perishable. So, very interesting language by Paul. Lest at any time we should let them slip. Now, to go back and pick up on the language of these first four verses, 
Verse 1 reads, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Verse 2, For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Verse 4. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. Well, we find a formula inside of these verses that is of great interest to those of us who want to be spoken to by the Lord and to have a witness confirmed by the Holy Ghost. In verse 4, we find Paul, or the author of Hebrews, talking about the gift of the Holy Ghost. Notice the sources of information that are laid out in verses 2 through 4. In verse 2, the word spoken by angels. Now that is a possible source of information to us. And as we learned from the previous chapter of Hebrews, we can be spoken to by angels without realizing that it is angels speaking to us. More on that in just a moment. Another source in verse 3 at the end, confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So eyewitnesses, others who have heard the voice of the Lord who speak to us. Then, verse 4, God also bearing them witness. So these are sources that can speak to us, and in all three instances, they uh, are backed up by the witness of the Holy Ghost. Now, to go back uh, to angels in verse 2, there's an amazing verse by Nephi in Second Nephi where he says explicitly that angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. In verse 3, when we talk about others, other witnesses, who testify to us, consider section 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where we learn that those who preach by the Spirit and those who receive by the Spirit are both edified by the Spirit. So there's a third party involved in the interaction between a witness, another mortal who has a testimony, and the person listening to that witness. Two mortals interacting. However, if there's an intermediary, in that interaction of the Holy Ghost, then it turns out that the Holy Ghost is the thing that speaks most impressively to the hearer. Now, this can also be true with the ministering of angels. There could be times, and it's inferred in um, Second Nephi, and there have been other statements by uh, prophets, particularly Elder Oaks, then Elder Oaks, that... Um, there are other beings besides fellow mortals that can initiate communication from the Holy Ghost. So when we learn that angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, it may be plausible that when we receive a prompting, that could be initiated by someone trying to speak to us by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now that's, that's one possible scenario within a broader category of being influenced by the Holy Ghost, so don't uh, mishear what I'm saying. And then the third possibility is that God himself speaks to us. And in all cases, again, these witnesses are confirmed by the Holy Ghost. So there's the first four verses. Um, they're full of, of insight into this process of how a testimony is received 
the accountability we have to maintain it and its perishable nature. We return to a theme that was used in chapter 1 of Hebrews, uh, this theme of angels in verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. Then verses 6 through 8, or much like Hebrews chapter 1 as well, in that Psalm 8 verses 4 through 6 are being quoted. And it is a beautiful quotation. It reads, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownedst him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. After all of the information we received in Hebrews chapter 1 about the angels worshiping Jesus Christ, how is it that we can read this phrase in verse 9 that says Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels? Our best interpretation of that is that this is a way of Paul expressing the Savior's condescension to earth, where during that period of time, when he walked on the earth in a mortal body, he was at that period of time condescending to a station that is a little lower than the angels. And that also would be the context in which he was ministered to by angels. There are uh, a couple of really uh, uh, nice examples of, of the condescension being described, and, and Paul is one of those people that describes them in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, I wish I had that in front of me because it's a, it's a really complimentary description to the one that's in 1 Nephi 11 when he says, Behold the condescension of God. I'm going to go ahead and read the verses that follow here. For And this is verse 10. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Here we find a reference, again, to the idea that bringing others unto glory and even bringing them to joint airship is a goal of Jesus the Christ and is the end goal of the plan of salvation that was implemented by the Father. Very thought-provoking and is confirmed over and over by the doctrines of the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That language sounds somewhat like the intercessory prayer in John 17. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, will I sing praise unto thee. Declaring thy name is, is rich with meaning as well. And again I will put my trust in him, and again behold I and the children which God hath given me. All of that sounds much like the intercessory prayer. 
Verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. There it is again, there's reference to the great Jehovah taking on a tabernacle of clay or a tabernacle of flesh and blood, condescending. Verse 15, And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Beautiful. Sounds like Jacob's language in 2 Nephi 9, overcoming the bondage of death, that great monster, as Jacob says. And in verse 16, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. All right, so what's the distinction between the nature of angels and the seed of Abraham? Well, that would imply, wouldn't it, that one who takes upon him the seed of Abraham, and I'm using the gender-specific pronoun him, but it applies to all, of course, he took upon him the seed of Abraham would suggest that he t takes upon him the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, which culminate in exaltation and in joint heirship. So it's the greatest of all blessings, as section 14, verse 7 of the Doctrine and Covenants says, or the greatest of all gifts that can be given by God. Uh, and an important thing to add to this is, is the meaning of the seed of Abraham, because if you take that literally, then you're doing what Paul has expressed in other epistles, where you're making too much of your genealogy. And of course, in the Gospel writings, that was expressed as well, when it was said that God could raise these stones up to be children of Abraham. So don't make so much of your lineage. This is a matter of taking upon the covenant of Abraham. And it turns out that anyone who is baptized can be adopted into the lineage of Abraham and can therefore uh, receive all of the blessings that that implies. Verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. There's that statement of condescension again, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Now that is a beautiful verse. It's somewhat similar to a verse we'll encounter later when he talks about by which the, the, or through the things which he suffered. And verse 18, For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Now the idea of Jesus Christ himself, the creator of worlds, the, the, the Jehovah of the Old Testament, that he could experience temptation is, is novel and somewhat hard to understand. So I want to offer a little bit of commentary on that. Uh, this verse suggests two things of interest. One is that the Savior has the ability to succor us and can therefore relate with uh, temptations and trials that we experience through mortality. The other is the suggestion that he, as a perfect being, experienced temptation. Our concept of temptation would be that um, it's almost like the cartoon image of having the, the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other that you're honestly giving consideration to the voice of the adversary at uh, different junctures in your life. And of course, for us, this is a moment-to-moment -moment challenge, a day-to-day -day challenge. Well, it was for him, too. 
but it's not that he gave any more audience to that adversarial voice than he should have. So let's bear that in mind. The, the time that, that he became, as, as some like to see it, angry uh, when he cleansed the temple, which he did on two occasions, uh, is not an example of him giving in to anger. Uh, he never gave in to temptation. There's a great quote, I think it's in Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, where he talks about the strength we gain by resisting temptation, um, but, the, the, but it's only weakness to give in to it. And he relates that to someone walking in a stiff wind. It's a great quote. Here's something by Jeffrey R. Holland that speaks to the former concept of the Savior being able to relate with our sufferings. It goes like this. When Christ bids us to yield, to submit, to obey to the Father, to obey the Father, he knows how to help us do that. He has walked that way, asking us to do what he has done. He has made it safer. He has made it very much easier for our travel. He knows where the sharp stones and the stumbling blocks lie and where the thorns and the thistles are the most severe. He knows where the path is perilous, and he knows which way to go when the road forks and nightfall comes. He knows this because he has suffered pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, that he may know how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Says Elder Holland, to succor means to run to. Christ will run to us and is running even now if we will but receive the extended arm of his mercy. To those who stagger or stumble, he is there to steady and strengthen us. In the end, he is there to save us. And for all this, he gave his life. However dim our days may seem, they have been a lot darker for the Savior of the world.